Well, we're in a series in Philippians called what? Now you were in on that. It's called All In, and uh, it's been a tremendous series so far. I really enjoyed it, but in the midst of this, we're working towards next week our big fall festival, and there's some neat things that are happening even today maybe kind of change in midstream of this series to uh, talk about how can we be all in. The last passage that we were in the book, so interestingly enough, we will not be in the book of Philippians till the very end of today's sermon. But where we left off in the expositional layout of chapter 2 had everything to do with Christ and how Christ was all in. He didn't do it partially. He didn't do it to an effectiveness that pleased himself. He didn't do it conditionally or conveniently. Jesus Christ was all in, and that was required in order that you and I might experience eternal life. Amen? Amen. And so the reciprocation of that, I think, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. One of the worst challenges for believers is to be bored in our faith. And if we simply come to gather for information, then I want to put it this way. The church becomes like a pile of fertilizer. This just stuck in a pile doing nothing to send out a big smell. But when it's spread out and used effectively, it raises a harvest of hundredfold, a thousandfold. So that's why engaging is one of our key value statements. So I thought, you know, how does this work in context to the church? How do we all in engage? It's been fun, it's been good. This kind of break in the middle of expositing Philippians to look at how we do this. And so some of it has to do with baptism. Last week we covered the issue of the Lord's table. And what a joy, what a, what a great response I've heard from our people about our shift this year to focus and celebrate the Lord's table on a weekly basis. That's been a, a great, great joy that as your leadership, your church leadership, Wanted to give more opportunity for you to engage spiritually, to connect with the Lord, that your your response, your all-in response to that has been more than physical. That reflects a great spiritual maturity. But today, and there's a symbiotic relationship to this, today I've actually had several of you come and ask me questions about this. This change to the ESCA, that's our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America. Article 9 was voted on back in June and finalized that we're doing a change to one of the articles, the majors. But the majors was changed because of the minors. And so I've had some good questions on this, and now we're here. And it has to do with the end time. And so, interestingly enough, we're going to be celebrating new members today. Shortly after uh, my sermon, and they had to go through this class, and we spoke on the subject for like 45 minutes. Remember, guys? Yeah, you also had to follow the street, you all had to take a look at all that was going on. 
Would that bring me up? I only have five, ten, fifteen minutes to go to cover that today. So, um, it's just a, it's an interesting relationship to all the things that are going on. And not just in that focus, but in the focus of what's going on in the world around us. And so, with that, let me direct you back to where we're going to start. And so, we went to the statement on the ESP statement on baptism and on. Um, the Lord's table, and we read that the past two weeks. Now let's get to Article 9. So all in, sermon series. And so let's say this together if we can, because this is our key focus out of verse 2. Paul says this, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Where we start today is where we will finish today. So we'll come back and circle back around. How can we show that we're all in? Well, we can engage. We can engage. In, in some senses, brothers and sisters, I, I make mention of the, the pile of fertilizer as an illustration, but also because where we're going to trod today is an area that kind of fits into the, uh, the back storehouses of higher minds and uh, ecclesial thinkers. And some would say it's more about just your view on the subject, the ideologues, whatever it would be. I say no, this has everything to do with how we engage and engage. So I have the dubious responsibility to help you link something that is unfamiliar, uncertain, Various views about end times, and not just land on what is the view we should hold or what is the view that we hold here, but how do we live in light of that? If we walk out with just a view, then we're no better than when we walked in. If we walk out with an understanding of what is important, according to the Lord, and it shapes how we live this week, then we have grown, then we have engaged. So that is our goal today. So we talked about baptism and the Lord's table. So here we are. Re- Return of the King, kind of an idea for all you Lord of the Ring nerds. This passage out of Philippians, I thought I would start us out with some familiar territory that we will get into uh, maybe by the end of the year. We'll see. But Paul says this, he says, Our citizenship, I'm quoting from chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where we start. Are we truly doing this? Do we truly see ourselves as citizens of heaven? You want to know how to measure that statement? We are about to head into a tumultuous... If you think we're in a windstorm now, just wait for all the bloviating. If you could stand in front of all the politicians and their bloviating over the next year that's about to come, it would far surpass the wind speed of what we're experiencing outside today. Get ready. It's, it's already here. But it's going to get worse. If the weather guys could do a political mapping of the bloviating wind speed, 
they would give you red, red flag warnings much over the next coming year. Brothers and sisters, if we were as concerned about our citizenship in heaven as we are as to what's going to happen politically this year, the world around us would change. Amen? This is what Paul is saying. You are citizens in heaven. I claim dual citizenship. Do you? I hope you do, and I hope this year you see that as an opportunity for outreach. That anytime there's a political discussion around you, you let people know you have dual citizenship. And that your primary, your primary authority in life is who? Jesus Christ. You have every opportunity because of the political windstorm that's coming. So Paul starts with this. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. Think this way. Think this way. And from it, we what? We await. Are we still waiting? Yes. So we have two things in common with this church in Philippi. So we're awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will what? Transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Jim, can you, can you wait for the day? I'm with you, brother. I'm with you. And many of us are there. We can't wait to be transformed in, into His likeness. But here's the beautiful thing. We don't have to wait for the day, which you'll hear coming up in a little bit. He is transforming us even now, day by day. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He's transforming us day by day. My prelude's getting a little bit long. But this is good stuff. By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Have you tried to do a diet lately? Yeah, my wife and I. I'm just going to make a proclamation right now because they say that proclamations bring about accountability. So I'm supposed to be doing Whole30. No sugar, no carbs, no living. But sometimes Whole30, which is supposed to be for 30 days, sometimes for me it's 30 seconds. So, uh, somebody wanted to bless us with a lemon meringue pie this week, and they texted me. I didn't have time to respond to the text, and my lovely assistant, Vanna, responded back, no, we're being good. And I'm like, what did you do? Needless to say, there's half a lemon meringue pie sitting in my refrigerator right now. The challenge that I have in, in these areas of, of dieting, right? What are we eating? What are we focusing on? What brings us pleasure? What is it that we're looking forward to? How do we re- relegate or regulate our choices? Today we're going to speak to some of this and really understand that there's a greater power than us. And by the way, I, I, I'm just speaking to the verses, right? So I'm not one of these people that speaks about God as the higher power. Uh, you know, let's name God God, Jehovah, Almighty, right? El Shaddai, Elohim, all right? Not just some higher power. But what a comfort it is to me to know that there is a power greater than mine who succumbs to lemon meringue pie when I shouldn't. Now, you know I'm being silly, right? When it comes to the serious things in life, there's a greater power that can be at work in me. 
Let's let that shape the discourse of our teaching today. Amen? All right. Now we're going to move at a breakneck speed, so you're going to start feeling some wind. So we're going to talk about a change in our doctrinal statement. What is a doctrinal statement? It is those things, or it is that thing, the, the canon, so to speak, the constitution of a church. And our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America, has a belief statement. This is Article 9, and one of the, the easy ways to understand what it means to, we call it what it means to be free, we're so tricky that way. What it means to be part of the evangelical free church, what it means to be free, is that we major on the majors and we minor on the minors. That does, in fact, separate us out from some denominations that are pretty dogmatic about their doctrinal statement. So the free church as a denomination would allow us as a church to make autonomous decisions about things that are maybe a little less clear in Scripture. So if a church wanted to practice the gifts of healing, and they're part of the evangelical free church, they would say that there may be a good and advisable uh, understanding of Scripture, but we understand that there are some differing opinions on that subject, and it really isn't that which saves an individual, so therefore it would be a major or a minor. A minor. Does that mean it's dismissing it and saying it's not important at all? No. What it is saying is you as a church decide that. You as a local body decide how you're going to approach that area. I love that. And that's what sets the free church denomination apart from every other denomination I've come to know. And so as we look at this, there is a statement, Article 9, which is a major statement that has been changed. So this is why we need to teach on it. It is our end times statement. And it's changed by one word. That if you think that there is a maelstrom outside, this discussion has been going on since 2009 in a major capacity, and it took from 2009 to 2019 to finally go through a vote. And now there will be churches in our denomination that will pull out, they have let us know that, because of a one-word change, because they see this as a major. So we see this worthy of something to be discussed from the front to help you understand our position. First of all, you need to understand the elders have affirmed the new statement. Secondly, what is that new statement? So this is the original rendering. We believe in the personal bodily and premillennial return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. We're actually going to cover all of that today in about 10 minutes. So what changed? One word changed that is causing a huge maelstrom that it took 10 years to have this discussion. And this is a commentary on who we are as people. And the traditions that we follow and the movements that we follow versus majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors. Here's the word. Oh, wow, this visceral reaction. Somebody got it right. They're like, yes, where's my money? 
Yes. Now, it is my job. So it's premillennial. Has been removed from the doctrinal statement. Now, many of you, how, well, no, I'm not going to do that. Many of you may have been raised, I was raised to believe in a premillennial view of the return of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at where that comes from, Revelation 20, in just a minute. So now it says we believe in the personal, bodily, and what? Glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if they're going to major on the majors and minor on the minors, the previous statement required a belief in a systematic theology of premillennial eschatology. And if you can say that, you're going to get two stars by your name in the directory. All right? That really isn't super consistent with the EFCA statement. Now what, or, or belief system on majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors. They've said, we're going to take a movement, we're going to take a systemized form of theology and say you have to choose this one. What if they had removed the return of Jesus Christ? Would that be a major problem? Yeah, we're, we're going to become non-denominational at that point. Okay, and the winds are going to blow 100 more miles an hour. Instead, they doubled down. Do you see that? They doubled down on what truly is important. And let me ask a question. Have they removed the choice to each local church to still hold a premillennial view? They have not. Sneaky, aren't they? So, what's at stake? Why go through all this? Why make me preach on it and eat up our Sunday morning? Well, let me help you. Revelation 20, and you can turn there. I've got the passage up there, but it may be too small. When it comes to eschatology, which is the study of end times, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a real quick synopsis. There are many beliefs, and they involve this. Jesus will return. We're not going to fudge on that. Now, when is he returning? By the way, Jesus was supposed to show up at his first advent. Did they get it right? They didn't. Who really took it seriously, though, when he did show up? This is very odd. The Magi, who weren't necessarily, we don't know for sure that they were even Jewish. Herod. So much so that he killed thousands. But the ones who really knew everything didn't get it right. Understand this. Man has an insipid, repetitive problem of thinking there is the authority and they really got all this stuff figured out, but our history works against us. So, in Revelation, Jesus' return, how many of you have heard the rapture? Heard, not heard it, but heard about the rapture. The rapture is... I heard it, and they missed me. Ah, So, the rapture is a... You don't find the word in Scripture, and we've heard all that before. The rapture is a, a movement. It is a belief system that the Lord will come back, and there's some good scriptural uh, backing for that. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist. All right? That the Lord will return before His second coming, and He will meet the believers, those who, who have placed their faith in, tri- in, in, in Christ, 
and he will rapture them up to be with him before the tribulation. How many of you know what the tribulation is? Saying, Pastor, if you knew my football team, you'd know the tribulation. Self-prophecy there. Yes, there's going to be a seven-year tribulation. There's different views on when that rapture is going to, it's going to happen before the whole revelation. It's going to happen in the middle of the, uh, uh, the tribulation. It's going to happen at the end of the tribulation. You see how we do this stuff? It's going to happen at the end of the tribulation. And all of these scholars, it would never get any traction if there wasn't some way to point to some scripture and kind of formulate an idea from it. After the tribulation, you do have the second coming of Christ, okay? which we refer to in here. After the second coming of Christ is what is referred to as the millennia. All right? It is a thousand years of peace where Satan is bound. Revelation 20 speaks to it. And let's turn there and let's give you an idea of what this looks like. So this is towards the end of all the description in Revelation. And Revelation is filled with much allegory. Much that is hard to follow. Some you have to take chronologically in order. Some you cannot take chronologically in order. It is a huge challenge, and that's why we have so many views as to what's going to happen, when it's going to happen. So, this is speaking to that thousand years of peace. And then after the thousand years, Satan will be loosed again. I won't have time to read the whole thing. You can do it in your own studies. Satan will be loosed again to deceive the nations after the second coming of Christ, and then comes the new heaven and new earth, and then Satan is permanently cast into the lake of fire. So let's look real quickly. He says, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for what? A thousand years. And threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and for those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. And this is speaking to John seeing... uh, the aftermath of the tribulation. So, there are those that, that say that that chronologically makes a lot of sense for the millennia to come after the tribulation, but before the final uh, restoration of the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. Here's the challenge. There are three views. Amillennial, premillennial, and postmillennial. I will cover two of them quickly. The third one isn't even worth talking about, in my opinion. You can do your study on your own. That's postmillennial. Amillennial is a doctrine that, well, for you Greek people, what would that mean? There is no literal millennia. That what is described in Revelation 20 is a metaphorical, right? So, you could look at this idea, for the Lord, a day is like what? A thousand years. So, we have that text. You don't ever want to proof text off of things like that. But, there is language in the New Testament that speaks to these concepts of great spans of time. 
They're not meant to be interpreted as literally one day to the Lord is only, it's not 999, it's not 1,001, it's exactly 1,000 days is one day, right? So we can see that there's allegorical language or inference that's being used. So those who hold an amillennial view say that this is allegorical and I'm just going to get to the punch on it, that they believe that this time started with the church age. We are currently in this idea of the millennium. Now, here's what you need to understand in context to, well, what do I believe? What, what do I hold on to? Historically, there are many, going all the way back to the apostolic fathers, the early church, that held this understanding. As a matter of fact, I'm not an expert in church history, but from what I have referenced, this was the majority view for a long period of time within the church. Now, I'm going to take you to the premillennial view. The premillennial view did not start in 1950, but I'm going to fast forward you to that in a moment as to why it became so popular. The premillennial view existed early on with the church fathers as well. There was confusion. How many of you know the scripture, and we're, we're going to get to it, I don't know that I'll read this exact passage, section of the passage in Matthew 24, but Jesus said, there are those of you who are here, this generation will not pass before these things happen, right? And Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 is describing the events of the tribulation and the end times, and if you know your history, you know what the Jewish people in the early church went through in the early times was very much what you could see straight out of the book of Revelation. That's another view. It's called a preterist view, and I don't have time to go into that. That the tribulation actually happened during the time of John. You remember the passage where Jesus says, you will not pass away before these things happen? Alright, so that makes sense, because John passed away after 70 A.D. What happened in 70 A.D.? The temple was what? The temple was destroyed. Well, the temple was destroyed at the crucifixion, bottom line. A whole new thing started there. But the people of God suffered immensely. But they also suffered all the way up through 350 until Constantine declared Christianity the state religion. They were persecuted immensely. By the way, currently today, Christianity is the single most persecuted religion in the world. Where people are dying by the thousands because of their claim for Christ. So when was the tribulation? When is the tribulation? All you people who say, boy, it's just getting so bad, the Lord's coming. Good. I, I like that you're motivated to say that the Lord's coming, but I think the people in the early church had something on you. If you do your church history. So it kind of takes a little bit of the energy out from underneath. But just understand, the premillennial view was there early on. Now, something happened historically in 1948 that set off a movement called dispensationalism. And that's why premillennialism became so popular. What happened in 1948? Bob Huffman. Yes, historically. Israel, said from a Jew of all Jews. Israel became a what? A recognized nation. 
Now imagine that you have done your due diligence in Romans, and you understand how Israel is worked into end-time prophecy, and all of a sudden they're recognized as a nation? Oh, God's at work. God's doing something. And so dispensationalism was born. And that holds, and then you have hyper-dispensation. I'm really boring you with all this, right? I'm just dropping big words, just so you think I know something about something. Right? But hyper-dispensationalism would say, there's no such major in the majors, minor on the minors. What are all these terms? Are these terms that you're finding in Scripture? No, you're not finding them in Scripture. Why? Because they're not scriptural commands. They are movements. Hear me clearly. They are movements by men who look at Scripture and look at history and events around them. Matthew 24. We're going to get to it in a second. And they say, by reading the events around us, this obviously is fulfilling this prophecy. Therefore, this is the codified way to see the truth of Scripture. And so premillennialism had a huge resurgence in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And I was raised in that. And I was taught a good Christian believes this way. And maybe a good Christian does believe that way. The new statement for the pre-church allows for you to hold that view. But it also says there's good evidence that what's spoken about in Revelation 20 is allegorical. What is the uncompromising understanding of what we have to hold to? Jesus is returning. And therefore, we need to act appropriately in that. Any experts out there in eschatology, did I do a fairly decent job of explaining the difference between premillennial and amillennial? Any questions? I will give 30 seconds, and I'm not kidding this time. It is not like a thousand years. I'll give you 30 seconds to throw out one, one question about premillennial or amillennial. Okay, so you can see these two movements of thought, justification as to why they've landed there, and each, each idea has its own merits, but what should we do with it then, as Francis Schaeffer aptly says? Well, let's look at it. Jesus gives a discourse on the Mount of Olives before he's crucified, aptly called the Olivet what? Olivet Discourse. You guys are brilliant. And so part of that discourse I have up on the screen above you. And he's speaking about when he will return. Now, if Jesus is talking about when he will return, we should count it as what? Yeah, certain. There's no, there's no fudgy, smushy gray area here. This isn't jello. It's rock-hard cement, okay? So he says what? Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will what? I would think that they should rejoice, shouldn't they? What is Jesus saying? Oh, the world has heard about the second coming of Christ, but very few believe it actually is going to happen. So you can imagine when it does happen. In, in seminary, we have a very Greekish kind of terminology for that. It's called... Lumpus in throatus. I went to a weird seminary. It says, 
And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, is this illusion? Is this allegory? Is this metaphorical? No. Jesus is being very specific, very literal. This is how it will happen. And it says, with power and glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. I promised you there would be wind in the message today. There it is. So we know that the glorious return of Jesus Christ will happen because what? He said so. So what do we do with it? Well, let's continue to look at some things. Why do we have this shift? Well, I've already told you and, and gone to great lengths to talk about major on the major, minor on the minor. We can choose in this church which view we want to hold to. Are you weighted with bated breath as to what your leadership is going to tell you you need to believe? Somebody said no. No, I could care less. I care less what you guys think. Good. We're going to just take the politician's way out and say, you can decide. All right, no, we're not. We're going to take the same tone that the free church does and say, look, this is not an issue, right? Philippians, Paul, one mind, one heart, one spirit. We're going to continue to focus on the gospel and those things that, that do matter, that are demonstrative, that are cement, not jello. And we're going to say, we look to the return of Jesus. Now, if you think that that's going to come, be, you know, at this time or that time, you know what's interesting, whether it's premillennial or amillennial, it doesn't matter to a certain extent. You know why? We're with Jesus. Now, if we get up there and it's, I say, Jesus, so we're going to be good for like a thousand years, right? And then you're going to let them loose again? What does that infer? I don't trust Jesus? What are you thinking, Jesus? You're going to let Satan out again? What's going on with you, Jesus? Am I going to do that? Are you going to do that? None of us are going to do that because we understand He is the authority He trusts. So it doesn't really matter if that premillennial view is really true. What matters is I'm with my Lord and Savior. You're with your Lord and Savior. And the events as predicted by Christ are happening. Now, if it's metaphorical and we're, all, we're kind of in this church age, does that change anything for you and I when we go to heaven? Now, theologians will discuss the finer points of all those things. You know, your upgrade is all-inclusive. If you believe in amillennial versus premillennial, you know, you, you get butler service, turned down, you know, all those kinds of things, depending on what you... No! Ocean view of the sea of glass, right? No! So do you understand? We, there are churches that say, if you do not hold this view, you're out. Why? Because ultimately, it doesn't affect my salvation, nor does it affect yours. Let Jesus work it out. It's His gig. It's a t-shirt. We major on the majors, we minor on the minors. The major we need to be concerned about is the return of Jesus, not when. By the way, I'm not saying it doesn't matter when He returns. And I'm going to finish with that thought and why I can qualify that statement in a minute. When is clearly stated in Scripture that we will not be expecting it and it cannot be predicted? Matthew 24. Turn there because what I have up on the screen doesn't 
reference that specifically. It's just the, the statement. So turn to Matthew 24, and you're going to, for those of you that came out of the 70s, when, when you know that, by the way, um, I, I, I'm half expecting, I wish we'd all been ready during our worship time today. Life was filled with guns and bullets. Nobody expected the premillennials to go. No, that's not the, that's not in there. So it says this about when, when, when is this happening? So pick it up, verse twenty-three. Then, if anyone, verse or chapter twenty-four, Matthew, verse twenty-three. Then, if anyone says to you, "Look, here is the Christ," or "There he is," do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Whenever the corpse is... Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And he goes on to, to speak later about this idea of, you know, two will be in a field and one will disappear. And that there's no way for you to know and, and, and understand when, when it's happening. And so verse 43, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour, what? You do not expect or you do not know. As a matter of fact, Scripture goes on to say later, even the Son does not know the hour. So why are we trying to predict this? There are some inherent problems with trying to put timelines on when Jesus will return. We have a bad history when it comes to this, and I don't have time to get into all those that have done this, but many of you are familiar with just our Bay Area false prophet named Harold Camping. Right? Six times he predicted the Lord's return. Six times he was wrong. Six times people gave massive amounts of money and kept listening to him on the radio. Do you think we have an inherent problem that keeps showing up over and over and over in the history of mankind? Of course. And if you think guys like myself, not really me, but you know, guys that are, that are preachers, don't know that there are sheep out there that can be convinced of almost anything, then wake up. Because there are guys and gals that know that. And that's what the term fleecing the sheep means. And Harold Camping was one of them. On his deathbed, well, not on his deathbed, but close to his death, he recanted. So much so that he said, my critics were correct. And he said, no man, meaning man or woman, has any business trying to predict when the Lord is returning. And he referenced this passage. Wouldn't it have been, you think Harold Camping knew Matthew 24 before he made all these predictions? course he did. Did he cause a huge amount of confusion and probably bitterness within family and people turning away from the Lord? Very dangerous. So this is, these are the movements I speak of, brothers and sisters. And this is why I love the idea of majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors. What is the key focus to the end times? 
Jesus will what? Return. Secondly, and we're going to get into it right now, we need to be ready for that. The new statement allows for varied views, but requires unity on the return of the king. So there's your Matthew 24, uh, 45 through 46. Who then is the faithful and wise servant who his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So if we hold to this idea that, yes, Jesus is returning. Remember I talked about engaging. Well, so far we have great knowledge at this point. We've done a great job, class, in, in arriving where we need to arrive. But how does this change our life and how we're all in? Jesus and Scripture gives us great instruction on how to engage because of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. So Titus 2.11-13 through 13 speaks to this. And by the way, if you remember the end part of our doctrinal statement, it talks about how we should live in eager expectation. So Titus 2, 11 through 13, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. There's that word all again. Training us to renounce what? Ungodliness. Are we renouncing ungodliness? Because that's one of the things we should be doing until Christ returns. That's one way we can engage. Renounce ungodliness. You live in a world that talks about toleration. I don't see the word tolerate ungodliness in this instruction. It says renounce it. Now, it doesn't say renounce it with a bitter spirit and an angry tongue and daggers in your hands. That's not what Jesus did. But we should renounce ungodliness and what? Worldly passions. What does that mean? Well, all the things that the world desires that are feed that sinful part of us, that's a worldly passion. And so, does that mean you can't go on vacation to Hawaii? For those of you tuning in from Maui right now, all seven of you from Concord Bible Church, I know you're listening now with the waves in your back. Does it mean you can't go to Hawaii, Linda Benson? She had to answer that way because she went to Hawaii this year. No, it doesn't mean that. But it means that that is your love, and because you're pursuing worldly passions, you have walked away from the things God asks of you. And there is no recognition of Christ in your life. You look just like the what? You look like the world. So those are some things that we can change and engage in. We need to live self-controlled. Only have two pieces of lemon meringue pie. Not four in one night. You know that that's allegorical, right? I'm, I'm using some revelation lingo to help you understand really what's at stake. Although that's probably inappropriate. Upright. Righteous. Honorable. Right? That this is how we should live. A way that is acceptable to Christ and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for what? The blessed hope. Sometimes we look at that as the, the blessed circumstance. Right? That the return of Christ might cost me. You know, I've got some winning numbers here on my ticket. And I just have to go redeem it. Jesus, if you could just wait until I get my money. Could you just wait? Because that would be just circumstantially not convenient for me if you came back before I got my money. 
again, allegorical for deeper issues. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the reason I mentioned Titus is because that's kind of where we've got the glorious return, that language that's in, in there. There's some other scripture here, but the key idea for us to engage and be all in when it comes to the return of the King, be about your Father's work. You and I have limited time. Hear me clearly, brothers and sisters. We don't know when that return of the King is going to happen. So look at every day as you have limited time. And that day is an opportunity for you to either live for Christ and build the kingdom or for you to serve yourself. There's really not an in-between area. So how will we be prepared on that day when He does return? Will we sit there and say, you ever shown up to a formal event and you had no idea? You walk in with jeans and it's a black tie event, and you're like, ugh. Right? There are going to be so many on the day when we're gathered to the Lord and we stand before Him and He said, what did you do with what I gave you? Well, I was caught up in the idea that amillennialism means we're kind of living in that time. And, and this great teacher told me I really didn't kind of need to worry about because it, it's all allegorical and you take care of it all. And, and there's things like grace and mercy and, and hmm, that's the best you got. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I just, I knew that you'd return before the millennium and it wasn't looking as disastrous as I thought the tribulation would be, so I didn't think the millennium was coming anytime soon. And I thought, you know, after I get married or after I work on my career or after my children are grown or, or after I do this or after, then I'll really get involved in engaging for the king. And Jesus says in the parable about the talents, depart from me, you wicked servant. You have no part with me. Gosh! How horrible to hear those words. You have no part with me. We have the most blessed opportunity, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we get to partner with Jesus Christ in building the kingdom. And yet, we treat it so frivolously sometimes. The clock is ticking, no matter what view you hold. The clock is ticking. So therefore, let's be about the Father's work. Amen? Amen. Let me finish with some emphasis here because it's our key verse for the year. Right? You've heard this over and over and over, 1 Corinthians 3. And so, we start in 10, but I'm going to focus on 13 through 15. Each one's work will become manifest. For the day, remember I kept saying the day? There it is, the day, capital D. Sorry, I went to my radio voice there, didn't I? Capital D. Capital D. It means the day of the Lord when He returns and then we're gathered up. Guess what? You can do it. An ollie, ollie, oxen free. My kids got to call one ollie. This is horrible parenting, so don't use it. I'm not saying parents, you should use this. Kids in the room, don't use this against me. Don't use it against your parents. But my kids got to call one ollie a school year. Two? Oh, they were working us. I didn't know about the two. Apparently we had two, but no questions asked. They didn't have to go to school. Now, they couldn't do whatever, but between those school hours, they were given the grace to be able to enjoy life, to either sleep in 
They weren't allowed to go, you know, do, you know, they couldn't go to the mall, they couldn't whatever, because then we'd get arrested for truancy, and then that would be bad. You had to do your cheating in the dark, in the hidden corners. But there's no always when it comes to getting before the Lord on that day and saying, uh, send me back. I saw this in the movies. You could do this. Send me back. Give me like three weeks and I'll hit it out of the park. No always, my friends. You get one shot. You're in a race. Paul talks about it over and over. You are in a race. Make it count. This is how we engage and we're all in when it comes to the return of the king. Amen? Amen. So, 1 Corinthians 3.13 says, Each one's work will become manifest. It's going to show itself for what it is when it's put to the test because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built, there's our theme, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a what? A reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer what? That, there is a sharp end of the punji stick right there for me. Have you ever been part of a team where things are run old school? Not everybody gets a trophy. And you're hoping that you get recognized as most inspirational or MVP or, or whatever it is. And you keep watching the awards get handed out and your name's not called. For me, not that that ever happens to me, but if it did, that pain was much more severe than the joy of receiving the reward when the rewards did come. There's something at stake. And so it says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So it doesn't mean that if you're lax a little bit on fulfilling what God has asked you to do that you're not going to heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you'll be there, but you're going to suffer loss rather than receive reward. There's something at stake with not engaging because the clock is ticking, brothers and sisters. That's what we truly need to understand about the return of the King and Article 9. And it is still written into Article 9. You have the privilege to believe either in a premillennial understanding of end times or an amillennial, or if you want, but we need to do counseling, severe counseling, if you believe in a postmillennial uh, view. So let the hate mail come. Okay, be about your father's work. How can we show that we are all in? Wow, that was pathetic. I gave a great message and I set you up and. Um, Let's try that again. How can we show that we're all in? Oh, man, I feel like we're storming the gates of Helm's Deep right there. And Gimli's blowing a giant horn. Okay, fantastic. Let me close in prayer, and then we'll continue in worship. Father, thank you for the fact that your son is returning, that you prophesied and you had in your plan and according to your will that he would come. He would come as a babe in a manger, that He would redeem His people, that He would suffer, He would die on a cross, and He would resurrect against all odds, and yet He did that. And that gives us every sense of understanding that the veracity of His return is imminent. 
And let us live in light of that. Let us engage. Let us let it affect not just our thinking, but our feet. Thank you, Father, for the glorious hope that you have given us in Christ Jesus. To you be all glory. Amen.